Well, good morning, everyone. If you're new to the church or if you're visiting, a very special welcome to you. We're so glad that you could join us this morning. If you don't know me, my name's Mark. I'm married to Deb, who's leading the band this morning. And we have the great joy of, of living pretty much halfway, exactly halfway almost, between the two sites that currently meet under the New Life banner. We're one church meeting across multiple locations. And as one church, both here at, in Fording Bridge and in Wimborne, we've been journeying together through the book of Hebrews over the last few months. And today we're going to bring that journey to a conclusion. So if you've got a Bible with you, can I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews and chapter 13. We're going to read the whole chapter together. So this is Hebrews 13. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison, as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated, as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that's yet to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. And pray for us. We assure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I might be restored to you soon. And may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom we glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written you only a short letter. 
I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. And grace be with you all. Yes, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that this is life and truth for us. Lord, help me to so speak and each of us to so hear to do your will. Equip us, Lord, for every good work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as this is our last message in this book, it would perhaps be good to just remind ourselves of some of the key themes in the letter. The writer seems very keen throughout to show the superiority of Jesus. By that, I mean how great how much greater, how much better Jesus is. He's better than angels. We saw that in chapter 1. He's greater than Moses, chapter 3. He's the greater high priest who ushers in a greater covenant. That's chapters 4 through 6. Through 8, sorry. And in his own body, he offers a greater sacrifice. The writer keeps pointing his hearers, or in our case readers, in the direction of Jesus. He wants us to keep our eyes fixed on him. In fact, he makes that perfectly clear in the previous chapter, where he writes in verse 2, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He had already alluded to it in chapter 3 and verse 1, where the imperative was to fix your thoughts on Jesus. So can you hear this refrain? Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer wants us to keep our focus firmly on Jesus. He wants us to finish the race that Christ has marked out for us. He doesn't want us to fall. He doesn't want us to lose heart. This book or letter to the Hebrews, has been written to help Christians pursue a lifestyle worthy of our calling, which is to follow Christ, to run after it, to take hold of that for which Jesus has taken hold of us. This book has been written to help Christians run their races well and reach the finishing line, because the writer knows all too well that there are many distractions, many hindrances that threaten to trip us up and stop us running through the tape and into the arms of our loving Saviour. Now, for the first century Christians, those who would be first to hear this letter, perhaps the most serious problem that they would have encountered would have been the problem of persecution. And it appears that some of these early Christians have been put in prison for their faith. Some had had their property confiscated. And some had even been killed for their faith. And they were being persecuted on at least two fronts. By the Romans and by the Jewish leaders. So at the point this letter is written, the majority of those who followed Jesus were Jewish. Which is why this letter is said to be written to the Hebrews. And Judaism was at least tolerated by the Romans as a kind of official religion. But Christians were seen as dangerous revolutionaries. So the pressure that they must have felt to renounce Jesus, to give up, 
to leave the church, perhaps go back to the synagogue, to stop running the race, the pressure must have been immense. And so we've seen that in this letter there are strong encouragements to keep running the race of faith. Because it seems as though some of these Christians, it's like they were driving straight towards Jesus. And then it's like they either threw the car in reverse or, or kind of did a U-turn. And the other thing that this letter warns against is coasting. To continue the car metaphor. I remember my driving instructor, I mean this is a long time ago, mind. But I remember my driving instructor warning me against coasting. It was a big no-no for the driving test. You know, you know what I mean by coasting? It's like where you whack the car out of gear and into neutral. So you're still kind of going along. You've got motion, but you've got no power to the wheels, and you're not in control. And the author seems to suggest that some of these early Christians were a bit like that in their faith, just kind of coasting along. And so we have these repeated warnings. Don't be sluggish. Pay more careful attention that we do not drift away. Do not harden your hearts. We do not want you to become lazy. Do not throw away your confidence. This letter was written to encourage these guys to keep on running. And I love that in verse 22. The writer says, depending upon your translation, I've written this brief letter. So one commentator suggests that it would have taken probably about an hour to read this letter in its entirety to its original audience. And after 12 chapters, we come to this chapter, which is packed full of imperatives. And so I guess the question is, what does it look like to run the race? Or to put it another way, the question hanging over from chapter 12 is, what does acceptable worship look like? And the reason I put it that way is that in the last verse of the previous chapter, the writer exhorts his readers or listeners to be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That's how chapter 12 ends. And what follows is kind of an exposition of that verse. In other words, chapter 13 shows us what a life of acceptable worship looks like. These imperatives listed in chapter 13, they're the kinds of response that the writer expects from his hearers in the light of everything that he has written in the previous chapters. About the greatness of Jesus and his superiority, he's painted this magnificent picture of the majesty of Jesus. And now he's expecting particular kinds of or types of responses. So let's unpack them a little bit. And firstly, in verses 1 through 3, the writer encourages the church to love without limits. Love without limits. Now the Jews were known as a fairly tight-knit community, and in fact, according to John's Gospel, Jesus himself had said that the disciples' love for one another would mark them out as his. So the writer encourages them to keep on loving each other. Keep on doing it. However, you only have to consider the Jews' attitudes towards, for example, 
the Samaritans to know how xenophobic they were. Now, I'm not that different. There does seem to be something in our nature to be tribal, doesn't there? Mods and rockers. In West Side Story, it was the Jets and the Sharks. There can be geographical rivalries. For example, when I was at Ringwood Comp growing up in the 80s, there was a rivalry between this, though, us in Ringwood and the guys who came here in Burgate. And apparently the guys at Twynham School in Christchurch really hated us. And some people from Southampton, I hear, feel the same way about guys from Portsmouth. But let me tell you about the worst instance of tribalism that I've ever experienced. Now, football fans amongst us, please don't hate me. But I confess that I am a Manchester United supporter. Yep, sorry, I've just alienated at least quite a few of you. And the last game I attended was a home game at Old Trafford against Liverpool. Now, I've... Ex yeah, here we go. See, I've, I've experienced some banter in my life. But what I witnessed between these two sets of fans, and that was something very different, I can only describe it as vitriol. Absolute hatred. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it relatively easy to people who are like me. People that dress like me, come from maybe the same kind of background, like the same kind of music, even support the same team. And I suggest to you that that kind of attitude is quite commonplace in the world. But we are called to be different, brothers and sisters. Christian love is to extend beyond friends and family, beyond people that are like us, reaching out to strangers, to prisoners, to those who suffer. This kind of love, this is counterculture. And the writer is encouraging us in verses 2 and 3 to love outsiders and those who are not like us as much as we love those who are in our circle, whatever that might look like for you. And if you are anything like me, that kind of love doesn't come naturally. But fortunately, praise be to God, he has made provision for us in our weakness. For as Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 5, God's love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, I don't find that this kind of love comes naturally to me. So I'm really really grateful that God has made supernatural provision by his Holy Spirit. He's poured his love into our hearts. Freely have we received, so freely let us give. Now in verses 4 through 6, the writer also encourages us to have a counterculture attitude towards sex and towards money. Can I suggest that these are two of the great idols of our generation? But the worship of sex is not a recent phenomenon. Very soon after this letter was written, the Romans built probably what were their largest temple to honor Venus, their goddess of sexual love. A lifestyle of worship means embracing a very different view of sex to the world around us. And we do this, the writer tells us, by placing a high value on marriage as being the only appropriate environment for sexual relations to take place. And I don't think that's a particularly popular position to take in our generation. 
And with regards to money, Jesus warned his disciples that it's one of the greatest rivals for our heart's affections. It promises satisfaction, but it so often fails to deliver and just seems to make us more miserable. And so the writer encourages his listeners to keep free from the love of money and instead find contentment in what God has given. And he quotes from two Old Testament passages from Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6 and Psalm 118 verse 6. And he quotes those passages to remind us that God is our constant companion, that he is our helper, that he is our protector, and he is the one who sustains us. In Christ, our Emmanuel. I love that name for Jesus. We're probably going to hear it a lot over the next few weeks. Emmanuel, God with us. In Christ, we have everything that we need. And so we are encouraged to have the same kind of trust in God's provision that Paul demonstrated when writing to the Philippians. He was able to confidently declare, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. What a great promise. What a great promise. And in verse 7, we are encouraged to remember our leaders to follow their examples and their teaching and to submit to their authority. And then the writer makes this statement, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we were in the prayer meeting in, in, the, uh, in the conservatory earlier on and this very verse was prayed out. And I find that tremendously exciting. It's almost as though God knows what's going to happen this morning, isn't it? Yeah, funny that. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now that might strike you as a bit odd. Why is that relevant? What has the unchanging nature of Christ got to do with remembering our leaders? Well, when he writes the outcome of their way of lives, in the original Greek, the word is ekbasis or exit. So perhaps he's saying more about how they died rather than how they lived, which kind of makes sense when you consider that, as the author Phil Moore puts it, the senior leaders in the church were dropping like flies. James had been stoned, Peter had been crucified, and tradition states that Paul had been beheaded. So we're at a turning point in the church. Maybe it was time for others to pick up the baton and run. And so the writer assures them that perhaps, yes, things were changing for them. But their saviour and their eternal hope, Jesus, he wasn't in the nature of changing. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, I, I sincerely hope that our leaders don't start dropping like flies. But we are at a turning point in the life of this church. We are continuing to explore what being one church across multiple locations looks like. Perhaps the question might arise, will Jesus be with us as he has been in the past? I believe that if we stick close to him, he will. And I believe that the writer writes this 
so that we can be confident that he's going to be the same as he always has been and always will be. So let us do as the writer encourages. Let's have confidence in our leaders and submit to their authority so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. Understanding that they are accountable to God for the way that they watch over this flock. Now it's possible that as we go forward as a church that things won't always go smoothly for us. I've already talked about how this letter was written in the face of severe persecution. In the UK, we can still worship freely. We might suffer a little bit of ridicule for our faith from some of our friends or family or those around us. But it is unlikely that we're going to be killed for it. The same, however, is not true for our brothers and sisters across various parts of the globe. And in fact, data published just a couple of years ago suggested that one in every eight Christians worldwide, one in eight, live in countries where they might face real persecution. That's over 300 million of our brothers and sisters. Now for us in the immediate future at least, it's unlikely to be quite so serious. However, as we seek to advance the gospel of Christ in our communities, we need to be prepared that we're going to perhaps encounter some opposition. Listen to verse 13 again. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. So we're not called to stay in the relative comfort and safety of the city. We're called to go outside the camp. And be prepared to share in Christ's sufferings. Keeping our eyes on the city that is yet to come. And again, what keeps us going? What keeps us running the race? What spurs us on? Is the promise of something better yet to come. So let's keep coming back to the cross then. In the previous chapter, the writer reminded us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And he encouraged us to keep our eyes fixed upon him. The cross is absolutely central to the gospel. John Piper calls it the blazing center of history. I love that. The blazing center of history. And it's because of the cross and the victory that Jesus won at the cross that we have any hope of everlasting Joy in the city that is yet to come, in other words, eternal life. Without Jesus and without his sacrifice, we would still be dead in our sins. We would not even dream of approaching God. His holiness and our sinfulness being so completely incompatible. But through the cross, Jesus has made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. The sin that separated us from him has been paid for in Jesus' own body at the cross. He died in our place and was raised to eternal life so that all who believe in his name also might never die but live and reign forever with him. What a glorious gospel. Hallelujah. Now, through Christ, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence as the writer himself tells us in chapter 4. 
And so we come to what I might suggest is the summary statement for our passage. So it kind of all summarized in verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So we're coming now to a subject that, as many of you all know, is very close to my heart, and that is the subject of worship. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word worship, but I think that in many Christian circles, it's come to kind of mean singing. We say things like, we're going to go into a time of worship, when what we really mean, although it's kind of clunky, is we're going to have a time of sung worship. Now, I don't have the time to go too deeply into this. And also, it will probably distract us from what God, I feel God really wants us to take hold of today. But in brief, my philosophy of worship is based on Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true and proper worship. And so, and, and I am confident that you guys know this, but true and proper worship is so much more than singing. But it's about living holy and sacrificial lives. The kinds of, of lives that the writer to the Hebrews has described in our passage this morning. Now, now please hear me. The types of things that he writes about here I don't believe they're supposed to be an exhaustive list. They're just examples of the kinds of response that the writer expects in those that are pursuing the Christian life. It's about not forgetting to do good. And it's about sharing with others, according to our passage. But it is also continually offering to God a sacrifice of praise. So it is about singing too. It's just that that's not all that worship is. It's just that the praise and the adoration that comes out of our lips is simply the overflow of what God has done in our hearts. In the Old Testament, the prophet Micah asks the question, and what does the Lord require of you? And in response, he gives this answer, to act justly or rightly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. See, this, this is what running the race looks like. This is what acceptable worship looks like. It's acting rightly. It's treasuring mercy. It's walking in humility. It's living sacrificially. And it's pursuing purity. And I believe that the Bible teaches us that whenever we make a conscious decision to trust God's promises, or to obey his word, whenever we do that, rather than give in to temptation, then that is worship. And so how do we achieve this kind of lifestyle? How can we be sure to respond in the kinds of ways that the writer seems to hope his readers and listeners will respond? How can we be equipped to run this race and be strengthened, to persevere, even in the face of difficulties and opposition. 
We have the Holy Spirit. That's wonderful. And I think that this wonderful benediction in verses 20 and 21 can serve as a wonderful prayer for us. So as I close, I'm, I'm going to pray that over us as the band comes up and lead us in a time of sung worship as we respond. But before I pray this benediction, and there might be some people here this morning, or perhaps they're listening to a recording of this message, who need to respond in a particular way. Now maybe you've never seen the cross of Jesus as the blazing center of history. But perhaps something is stirring in you. And you're wanting to know more about that. About who Jesus was and is. About the significance of his death on the cross. And the great significance of his being raised to life three days later. Perhaps something is stirring in you. Or perhaps this morning you're aware that you've kind of been coasting in your walk rather than running. God is so gracious. If you are in Christ, then there is no condemnation. Please hear that. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. However, maybe God wants you to kind of come and confess to him so that any guilt that you might be feeling can be taken away. So bring that to the cross of Jesus. Or maybe you just need some assurance this morning. The writer of this letter calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. And Paul, again writing to the Philippians, says something very similar. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If God has started working in you, and you can be assured that he will carry on working in you and bring what he has started to completion. And so if you fall into any of those categories, or if something else has really touched you this morning and you should like prayer, I'm sure there's plenty of people here who'd pray for you, or you can ask one of the elders, and I'm happy to pray with you if you want. And if you're listening to a recording, please get in touch with us via the website. But for now, I'm going to read this benediction over us as I conclude our journey through Hebrews. And I'm going to read it as a prayer over all of us as a people. So why don't we stand if you're able? Why don't we close our eyes? And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, May he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And may grace be with you all.